Welcome to Halal Money Matters. I'm Christopher Patton. And I'm Monim Salam. We're fortunate to have another exciting guest on this episode, uh, Dr. Miles Davis, president of Linfield University. He's an author, a leader in faith-based entrepreneurship, and just happens to serve on the board for the Amana Funds. And we're kind of tackling a couple different topics in this episode too. And one is to talk about entrepreneurship in Islam. And you spend a lot of time, you know, in the communities. Do people ask about this topic? Entrepreneurship is very similar to the investing part of Islam investing because, you know, I think people know that they shouldn't be involved with the alcohol part of it and those type of things. But sometimes we do get this question about, well, you know, the Islamic in- investing allows you to do 33% in debt or 5% in alcohol. Why, you know, why can't I do that in my own business? That We get that all the time. But more importantly, I think what's, what's really important for people to remember is, um, is that, um, you know, what really people wanting is advice on how to raise money, you know, how to make it make sure that it's Islamic, all of those things. So I think th- those are the two branches or two areas um, that really get, get get a lot of questions. We also want to talk to Dr. Davis about the financial side of the Black Lives Matter movement and ways that maybe investors can be advocates or is there an obligation as an investor or as an Islamic investor to uh, kind of keep an eye on companies and how they're associated with that movement? Yeah, it's really, really exciting. Um, you know, he's African-American, I, not only coming from Philadelphia, um, but also, you know, growing up in, in an African-American community. I, I'm sure he has a lot on his mind when it comes to Black Lives Matter. Sure. All right. Well, let's get right to it. Just to jump right in, like, what are we talking about when we talk about entrepreneurship from an Islamic perspective? Is it a question of you know, what does it look like? Or is there even more of a base question before that of, is it permissible? That, that's an excellent question. So let's, let's be clear, because it's important to understand words within that context. The word entrepreneur is a relatively recent word. The simplest definition uh, is where you are responsible for the means of production. You are the owner of that particular thing. Uh, you are not working for someone else. You're working for yourself. During the time of the Prophet Muhammad, so there, there, they didn't use that word entrepreneurs. There were, there were other more common words that are relevant to words that we do know, such as traders or merchants. And so uh, there are two things that I draw upon, and there's a paper that I have published uh, on this called An Islamic Model of Entrepreneurship, which anyone can Google and find. You can go to Google Scholar and find it. It's uh, been circulated quite a bit. Uh, which addresses that what I think is the foundation of Islam, because the first convert to Islam was the Prophet Muhammad's first wife, Khadija. So, so why is that relevant? Because Khadija came into contact with the Prophet Muhammad because she learned of his reputation. And she, now listen to this, Chris, because this defies all stereotypes about Islam. She hired him to work for her and represent. And so not only is entrepreneurship at the heart of Islam, but women owning businesses are at the heart of Islam. So now I'm getting controversial. People are like, oh my gosh, you can't say this type of stuff. But it's true. It's a historical truth. And she represented him, why? Because he was, he was considered trustworthy and truthful and she wanted him to represent her. And this is a woman that had the largest caravans. And when she went to Yemen, her caravans 
were bigger than all the other caravans put together. So she was an extremely successful merchant and trader, uh, and she hired the prophet. And I would say, uh, now we're entering into the realm of my opinion, so people are free to disregard this, but because she was a wealthy merchant and trader, it was part of a lost point one dollars plan to allow the Prophet Muhammad to be successful because he had the backing in order to make independent decisions without necessarily being tied to various other institutional structures. Now, let me tell you where that goes for me, the next leap in my mind about why entrepreneurship is not only uh, uh, halal or uh, permissible in Islam, but I would even offer it is the preferred form of Islam. And it's for a number of reasons. So let me start with a hadith from the Prophet Muhammad so, so when a man, and forgive me for my imprecise narration, but anybody can verify, they can take the keywords and go look it up for themselves. And so when a man came to the Prophet Muhammad and he wanted to marry, you know, of course I'm paraphrasing now, the Prophet says, okay, so you want to get married, what's your issue? Uh, and the man basically says, well, I have no means of, of earning a living. I have no way of doing anything. And, you know, the Prophet said, okay, well, you know, well, actually you do. And, and the man's like, okay, you know, what do you mean? He, you know, so basically then the Prophet told the man to go cut a bundle of woods to put them on his back and go sell them. That's, that's entrepreneurship. So, right. but, but I think you make a very highly important point in the very beginning, you know, that Khadija, who was the wife of the prophet, was an entrepreneur. A lot of scholars think that the funding of Islam in the early years actually was because of the fact that she had her independent wealth. Um, but it's not only the funding, it's the independence of it, right? I mean, for example, Abu Hanifa is another one. The reason yes. why he was able to come up with his opinions that he did was because yes. he wasn't reliant upon the state to give him money or Anybody else, he has his own business system. Yeah, I like to do that. Yeah. Very, very important uh, point to make. And you mentioned something about one of the companions. I want to give you another example just to kind of share. It. And that was with uh, Abdurrahman ibn Auf. It was one of the wealthiest of the wealthy, right? Yes. Um, when he first got to Medina, uh, when, when, when his, his brother, quote unquote brother said, you know, take whatever you want from, from whatever I have. He said, nope, all I want is you show me where the marketplace is. And then when the short period of time, he had enough money to buy himself some new clothes, enough to that the prophet uh, walking past him was like, oh, I smell something good on you and you're wearing new clothes. And this was within a few few days of being able to do that. So I agree with you that a lot of uh, uh, you know, encouragement towards doing uh, things on your own. So it, it seems that the heart of it is to not just provide for yourself, but to improve your community yes. so that people have the freedom to make their own decisions and pursue their faith within a structure that works for them. That's a really good point. You know, in our community in the U.S., and, 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 and unfortunately, maybe, uh, you know, people don't even realize that they're entrepreneurs, but they really are, right? Yeah, so, yeah. for example, in our community, you know, when, when you know, people, youngsters are growing up, you're like, you have to become a doctor or an engineer, right? But, yeah. but the thing is, is that a lot of the people that are saying that are themselves are the ones who are owning their own businesses, restaurants. So, so they're doing it themselves. But then also a lot of doctors have their own practices, with, which is also entrepreneurship, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of within, within the fabric of our community. It's already embedded. I just don't think people have kind of said, oh, yeah, I am an entrepreneur. Yeah. And, and so what, what people need to primarily understand is not to look at entrepreneurship from the perspective of you know, how innovative or creative it is, 
I think that it would help a lot of us to see ourselves differently if we looked at what we did and the ability to more or less uh, control what it is we're doing. And so a doctor uh, who is an entrepreneurship has a practice. And yes, they have to answer patients or anything, but they, but they don't have, they're not necessarily working for someone else. They're working for themselves. And I, I will tell you uh, why I got excited uh, as a matter of a personal thing about entrepreneurship uh, because of reading about these examples in, uh, in Islam, uh, you know, I, I, I have a lot of Muslim friends who are employees, and I'm making a distinction now between employees and entrepreneurs. And you, you, you want to know what they have problems with? I can't go make salat because my, my boss won't let me go. You know, Brother Miles, I wish, I wish I could attend Juma. You know, my boss won't let me go. When you own the thing, you're like, okay, I'll be back. <laughs> I'll talk to you in a few when you're in control. But even, I, I would encourage people uh, even to, to extend, uh, if I could, Chris, you talked about entrepreneurship, it's even entrepreneurship, because going back to the example with Khadija and Prophet Muhammad, she empowered him, and another new word that we're using, she empowered him to do deals on her behalf. And he acted in her best interest because he was a trustworthy individual. And so that is entrepreneurship, as he was working for an entrepreneur. And so this, this, is, this is at the heart of Islam uh, to look at how you can improve your circumstances and create an environment that, that allows you in your community to flourish. And, and then let, let me give you the icing on the cake about this. All the time that you spend in making an honest, living is considered time that you have spent in worship. It's incredible. That's beautiful, Dr. Davis. Thanks for the reminder. It's so true. I, I want to uh, step back a little bit and really talk about framework. So if you are an entrepreneur, I remember uh, a quote uh, or uh, basically something that happened that uh, when during the time of the Caliph Omar bin Khattab, um, before you were allowed to be able to come into the marketplace and, and trade, you actually had to learn the rules of regulate, like uh, the thick of trading. I, living in America now, also obviously, you know, you're on the board of the amount of funds, not only just the president of Linfield University. What would, what would be a good framework to look at from a Muslim perspective and say, this is what, what I can, can't do um, from a, from not only from an Islamic perspective, but then also then from a, a just a societal and Muslim perspective as well. I think that we need to understand um, what does God expect of us? Uh, and, and I can refer you to verses in the Quran substantiate this. He expects us to engage in fair dealing. Then I'll add something if you want to get more nuance, uh, which underpins a lot of uh, uh, Islamic thinking about entrepreneurship as well as Islamic uh, economy, is that money and money making doesn't exist just for the sake of making more money. You're supposed to do something with that money. You know, it's flooding into my head all the, all the rules that I learned which quite frankly led me to the position I'm in today. So like for instance, you know, unlike, you know, when, so when I was in business school and I was dean of a business school and they always teach you, you know, to, to get money fast from people and pay them as late as possible. But that's not the Islamic model. Matter of fact, you know, the Hadith says that you should pay a person for their work before the sweat is dry on their brow. 
Yeah, that's an interesting point that you mentioned. I mean, you're talking about learning in, in, in business school and those type of things. <laughs> and, you know, in business school, you're, you're initially, you're taught, you know, that the, it's shareholder value you know, at any yeah. cost, shareholder value, that's the one. And, and slowly now, uh, over a period of many years, now they're saying, no, there's also stakeholders, there's also societal costs, you know, you have to factor all of those things in. Um, so just then, then kind of branching off of that, your opinion about, you know, where does Islam lie in the middle? Or what, is, what, what does the Prophet Muhammad or, or God say about this situation? Of, is it the business that you're in? And I think I already know the answer, but I want you to explain to me um, more. Is that, you know, is it just about the shareholder value and ma maximizing that? Or is there some higher purpose that we have toward these businesses that we do? What, what, what Islam teaches is that uh, what, and I've actually written about this, is more consistent with the move away from pure shareholder maximization to what is we call stakeholder theory, is that you're impacted and you're impacting people by what it is that you're doing. Uh, and so you have to take in consideration. So not only Islam was ahead of its time in terms of what we now call stakeholder theory, it was also ahead of its time for what we now call CSR, or corporate social responsibility. Because you always had an obligation, quite frankly, it was ahead of its time in what, it, what we now call environmental stewardship. Uh, these, these are all fundamental constructs uh, of, of Islam, is that you have to take care of these things. You know, uh, you're, you're, the people who are invested in you, you create sustainability, but you create sustainability of your reputation uh, on top of everything else, not just the business model. So it's not just returning the highest profit, uh, it's returning something that is sustainable in the long run, uh, as opposed to just a short term, do whatever it takes uh, in, in uh, you know, the hack with anybody else. I don't know whether that's the answer you were looking for, but. You know, and we kind of touched around it, but something that comes up on this show, either directly or indirectly, whether we're talking about mortgages or your retirement account or whatever is, is it harder to be an entrepreneur and to have these additional considerations? Yeah. Yeah, it's otherwise known as the Muslim tax. Uh, matter of fact, we might even have a chance uh, to talk about what they refer to as the black tax later on too, but the Muslim tax. And so, look, you know, when I go out to eat, it's a lot easier for me to get a pork chop sometime. <laughs> but, but why don't I? <laughs> you know, I don't get a pork chop because, you know, I'm following a different code and standard. Uh, do I feel as if I'm losing something in the short time because I can't have short ribs? Uh, with Kansas City barbecue sauce, maybe I am. And, and you know, and right now I live in Yamhill County. I'm in the middle of, of a wine country, Pinot Noir country. I had a guy over my house who sold a bottle of his wine for $50,000. Am I missing something because I didn't get to taste that $50,000 wine? Believe me, I was very tempted because I want to know what $50,000 wine tastes like. You know, you know, so yeah, maybe, maybe, but it's why am I here? And, and the purpose of my existence isn't to have, you know, talk about maximization of, of, of shareholder value. It isn't to maximize the enjoyment of this life. That the, the, the purpose of life is to get to the afterlife. And that often requires sacrifice. But I will tell you this. But I have found that my life has been enriched, even financially, by following Islamic principles. 
not investing in what has come to be called sin stocks is actually a good thing because they don't get in trouble. Also, Islam abhors debt in the pan of interest. So guess what I don't have, Chris? I don't have any credit cards with debt on them. So that, so that, so that, so that, so that makes me one of the rarest things in the United States of America, a black man with a perfect credit score. <laughs> I'm following, you know, Islamic principles that engage my life. I don't spend beyond my means. You know, I help support my community. I do what I can. And so I always think about why are you doing this? Uh, it's about, quite frankly, for me, it's about maximization of blessings, about how do I increase the real wealth, uh, which are the blessings in my life and the positivity that is brought into my life as a result of doing the right things for the right reasons. Well, to pivot topics a little bit, uh, you mentioned the what you call the black tax. And as a black entrepreneur, we'd like to speak with you a little bit about the Black Lives Matter movement and how that pertains to investing in finance. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, and, and particularly like, you know, what is the responsibility of shareholders? And maybe not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, of the amount of funds, but, uh, as, but potential investors and companies involved with the African-American community or involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, what's a good starting point to look at? Uh, we cannot have a conversation about this in the 21st century, in 2020, without understanding the history of this country. Uh, and there's two di distinguishing periods that are worth examining in regards to this conversation. Uh, one is during the time of Jim Crow and post Jim Crow era in the United States. So uh, the, the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1968, which uh, prohibited uh, official discrimination. And so for those who are looking for a date, I would offer 1968 as a distinctive date. But I want to encourage people to look at the history of two states in relevant to this conversation. When we had a segregated society, Blacks own more businesses than they do right now. Now, uh, and if you want to see an example and then what happened to them, uh, you need to look at Oklahoma and look at Black Wall Street and then look at Florida, uh, had a similar community. Because when Blacks were forced to do business with each other, they created entrepreneurs out of the communities that served them. So if you could not stay at any hotel, you had to stay at a Black-owned hotel. If you couldn't eat at any restaurant, you had to eat at a Black-owned restaurant. If you couldn't get insurance, you had to buy insurance to a Black person. And so people started businesses to take care of the community and allow wealth to be circulating in the community. Uh, and I'm not going to give uh, a short change to the fact that those communities were intentionally destroyed uh, by, uh, by the white community uh, of the time because they began to envy what was happening there. Uh, but, but I don't want to dwell on that particular point. What I want to dwell on is what happened as we move forward from 1968. Uh, because Black Americans, I have to be clear about this, because most people uh, in the United States look at pigmentation and determine that their person is Black. But Black Americans have a different behavioral pattern than Black Caribbeans are blacks from Africa. Let me just stop you. I was in Minneapolis uh, very yeah. shortly thereafter uh, the, 
the whole thing happened with Joy Floyd. And I didn't realize that the Somali community there who lives adjacent to the African-American, the black community, they don't actually 100% get along, which, which is interesting to me because within one generation, the Somali community, nobody would know the difference between them and them. Yeah, and that, but, but, but they feel it. And, and as somebody who was married, I mean, you knew my ex-wife, Carol, was Haitian. And, and I, I, I got exposed to this quite a bit about the distinctions and perceptions and, 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 and the things that are going on. And so part, part, part of what uh, that feeds into this, and, and, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm sorry, I, I'm not going to spend too much time on the sociology of this, but it's relevant to understand wealth creation uh, in this country is that Black Americans have always been taught that they are less than. Uh, and so what has fed into them is the desire for acceptance, particularly in white society. What does that mean? Is that post-1968 that Black Americans believe that the water that white people drank was wetter than the water that they drank? And so rather than go patronize a Black business, they would often go patronize a white business and not keep the money inside the community, which allowed for no transfer of wealth. Uh, and this persists in some degrees today. Uh, and so even though it's interesting in, in an era of Black Lives Matter, I'm starting to see for the first time promotion that this per this business is black owned. You need to support it. Uh, but the only there there are three things that that older black Americans of my generation. So for 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 the listeners on the podcast, just so that I can date myself, I'm 61. But there there are three maybe four businesses that they're aware that were black owned that are no longer black owned. One one is BET, Black Entertainment Television. Uh, owned by, by Sheila and Bob Johnson, uh, uh, and, and now owned by Viacom. Uh, the, the other one was Johnson Publications uh, that, that owned Jet and Ebony uh, Publications. Again, no longer owned and, and quite frankly, barely in existence. And the other one was uh, Gaskin. Most people are aware of the history of Gaskin, who, 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 who still runs an insurance company uh, one of the most successful insurance companies. These are incredible businesses. But outside of that, there are none of those businesses. And then if you look at that in comparison to even as I look at you, Monique, you know, uh, you know, your family is second and third generation, but they came over, established a foundation and did some things that, that just has not happened in the black American community. And then if you throw in issues of redlining and restrictions of wealth, and even quite frankly, in the era of PPP loans, and look who's getting the money that minority businesses are not getting the money uh, because they don't qualify because money, many of them are sole proprietorships uh, and they don't have the structures to make this happen. They're being left out. And so the gap wealth and the, and the wealth, uh, uh, the two things that provide access to wealth, which is home ownership and, and, and owning businesses have been denied to black Americans. And unfortunately, uh, there's not enough often internal internal belief to do some of the things that some of the Caribbeans or the people come over from Nigeria where they support each other and build up the communities to allow it to happen so that they, they can fund themselves instead of having to go to the man. Uh, that was an air quotation for those of you who are listening. But even during, during this coronavirus epidemic, and not only, uh, you know, we, we have the statistics on how it's affecting the African-American community more just on the virus side, but now you're looking at it from the economic side. And if you look at traditionally owned black businesses or restaurants and barbershops, and those are the ones that are being shut down because of sole proprietorships. Of they, they, yeah. They're sole proprietorships. They often don't have accounting relationships. 
They don't have legal relationships. The foundations that, again, I learned in my fine business education that you need to have when you go into business, they don't have those things. They had nobody to file the paperwork. I don't know the work, and by the time they got the paperwork filed, the money was spent. Uh, and so you fall further and further behind on the economic ladder. Uh, and, and, and it's, uh, you know, and people talk, you know, it's always amazing to me when people say that they're not racist and, and, you know, I don't like calling people's names, but here's what I am clear is that you don't have to be racist to perpetuate a racist system. And so unless you affirmatively are taking steps to say, okay, how can we help these communities? Because guess, I, I, I got, I got news for you, Monim and Chris. People who have full bellies, who own homes and have money in the bank, don't riot. They don't own any of those stores. They don't own any of the businesses. If you want to stop riots in the street, invest in the neighborhoods that create opportunities for people to want to take care of themselves. Uh, and so, which all leads to the transference of wealth. In uh, building in an era of Black Lives Matter, the reason, and, 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 and Monine, you touched upon this earlier, uh, is that, that COVID-19 isn't, isn't just a, a, uh, a physical illness. Uh, you know, one of the first things that the schools in McMinnville had to consider when they closed down was, how do we get meals to our students whose only real meal is when they come to our school? And unfortunately, too many of those people are black and brown children. You know, so, so uh, and then I'll offer this as a perspective uh, to jump to the other side of this. Uh, it's relevant to consider uh, about owning the means of production. If you're worried about being discriminated against because you're black, and I know this is, look, I'm very glad this is easier said than done, but if you own the business, you get to make a different set of decisions. So there are Black-owned banks that if you're worried about that, you need to engage in having conversations about. They're, they're, you know, if, if, if somebody doesn't want or doesn't make the food you want, then, 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 then do the work that's necessary. Even as we're talking about the challenges to that, how do you have things in your community that allow you uh, to make decisions? And, I, and I'll, I'll just share this one last story, which, which shaped my thinking about this is when I was at Duquesne University and I got to meet a gentleman that forever had an impact on my life. It was Dean Ronald Davenport. He was Dean of Duquesne University's Law School, the first black dean of a major a white institution. Uh, and I showed up, and I know it's hard to imagine, for those of you who are listening, you don't know that you know, my head is bald and it's shaved now. But I showed up uh, back then in 1979 uh, with my dashiki and my afro, and you know, you know, all about power to the people. Uh, and Ronald Davenport, I went to see him because my father said I should. He was in Philadelphia, and I went in to see him originally. And, and, and he said, uh, he said, Miles, he says, uh, you know, I represent, you know, I, I recognize uh, and respect, you know, what you're saying. Militancy he says, because uh, I was in Pittsburgh, and he says, you can just go downtown and throw pebbles at U.S. Steel and think you're making a change. Or you can prepare yourself to run U.S. Steel and make a real change. The final thing he said to me, he says, just because you wear a Brooks Brothers suit doesn't mean you have to have a Brooks Brothers mind. And, and so, it, you know, I, I was taught that the, the way to power wasn't about the protest. The way to power was to be in decisions to hire and fire people 
because then you overcome some of the structural barriers uh, that people face in terms of discriminatory practices. Maybe this is maybe related to that, Son, but let's say you're an investor who has been possibly mm. benefiting from a racist system and you want to make a change. I've heard you say before, you know, that start with yourself, focus on yourself. Yeah. You're somebody that's looking at your wealth or your portfolio, like how different is it from being an Islamic investor where you're kind of having to keep an extra eye on things? So, so, so Chris, that's a wonderful question. If I may be interpreted, it's like, okay, so I've made money, I've benefited from this, what do I do with the money? You know, uh, so, so let me be clear, money in and of itself has, has no conscience. You know, it's how it's earned. But here, let me, let me give you a, a, a simple thing that I thought, think that could benefit all of us. If you just took, eh, let me pick out a number out of the air. If you just took two and a half percent, if you just took two and a half percent of the money that you had left over after you paid all your bills. So I'm not telling you to take it from the gross. I'm telling you to take it from the net. Take two and a half percent of the money you have left over and then use that money to reinvest in worthy causes or worthy individuals. You can transform society. You know, identify two and a half percent of what you have left over and take that and use that to invest in a business or use a startup. So it doesn't matter whether you make a hundred dollars, you make a hundred thousand dollars or if you make a million dollars. Two and a half percent of what you left, take and invest that in a person or a business that you think is worthwhile and just support it. And then along that two and a half percent, give them the most precious things you give them, Chris. The most precious thing, the non-renewable thing, which is your time. And say, you know, I, I know you're that sole proprietorship. You know, I know you're trying to get through school. I know you're trying to do this. Let, 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 let me help you. Let me be there for you. Let me benefit you. If you even did the same equation, uh, if, if you look at the number of hours in the day, uh, uh, and, and instead of uh, some of my friends that I know who play Madden or FIFA soccer for four and a half hours at a time, and they took two and a half percent of that, and said, you know what, I want to take 20 minutes to, 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 to speak with somebody who needs my help, you can transform the world. You can transform the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the, the interesting thing is, and I wanted to uh, 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 circle back to this thing, which is, you know, that uh, the ESG funds that we have, one of the things that we do on the governance side is to be able to look at the diversity of the board yes. um, as one of our criteria. Um, and, and that's gender diversity, that's ethnic diversity, all, all, all the different things that, that kind of make up for that. Um, so the question really becomes is that, uh, you know, what else can, 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 can a shareholder do besides that? But what else can we do to be able to, as a shareholder, not, not, not the fund, but just as yeah. an investor putting money to, to, to work for, for society? Uh, what, so what can we do? Invest, investors need to realize that the board is there to represent shareholder value. Uh, and so one of the things that has happened in the era of Black Lives Matter is that a lot of organizations have given lip service to support uh, diverse businesses. And quite frankly, their employees have begun to call them out on that. You're saying that you're supporting diverse businesses, but if you look at your hiring practices, your promotion practices, uh, and everything else, yeah, not so much. And so shareholders have to hold the board, which represents the shareholders, accountable for matrix that are meaningful. Giving lip service is not meaningful. 
And it's easy to give money and then walk away. What does it look like in terms of the decision-making in the organization? What does it look like in terms of hiring promotion patterns? What does it look like in terms of fair equity in the organization? How are people treated? You know, you use um, the, the term that we used in a business school, a balanced scorecard model. What is it not just the great returns, but how are people treated as part of this organizational structure? And shareholders have a responsibility to do that. Shareholders really do need to pay attention to what is put out in the shareholders report and also pay attention to what is not put out in the shareholders report. Uh, that, you know, uh, and then they need to contact the board. I know that there's this term activist shareholders. Well, doggone it, it's your money. You should be active about it uh, and let people know uh, what it is you're thinking about how we can be, do better. Uh, and the board members need to realize that they're not just there to co collect the paycheck and, and read over performers and approve things that the job of a member of the board is to look out for the best interests of shareholders. Uh, and so uh, they, they should at some point, besides being shareholders themselves, uh, they should at some point be engaged in talking uh, the shareholders to understand what shareholders are looking for and think, uh, uh, think about the bigger picture. You know, what, what, is, what, is the, what is it that we say that we're about? Uh, what, you know, so for instance, you know, I sit on the board. It's, I, matter of fact, I'll give you two examples. I sit on the board of Amanda Mutual Fund, uh, which is a board that uh, is designed, it, 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 it promotes itself as share compliant Islamic investing. So the, clearly it was designed to serve the Islamic community, even though non-Muslims invest in it and do things. But our job is to make sure that we're following the prescriptions as best as possible so that we don't, so that our shareholders don't have to worry about whether we're doing the right thing, but we, that, that our job is to monitor all this. So, so let me just say this then, you know, as we begin to wrap up this podcast, let's be clear. Black Lives Matter is not a statement about exclusivity. The word Black Lives Matter is only missing a preposition at the end, which is the word to. It means Black Lives Matter too. You know, for those who want to respond with all lives matter, that's not, that's not what it's about. We're, we're asking for inclusion in that. But you cannot have a conversation about Black Lives Matter just from the perspective of policing. You have to have a conversation about Black Lives Matter from how are you taking care of a population that, quite frankly, has been handicapped. There is a structural reason why Black Americans are disadvantaged in this country. And if you want to create a United States of America that lives up to its promise, then you have to affirmatively engage in that process to create a system that works for everybody. Uh, Dr. Davis, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I hope oh, thank, you. A, uh, thank you, Chris, for the money. I hope to see you soon. Thank okay. you. Give my regards to your family. Be well. Be blessed. Take care. Please consider an investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain this and other important information about the Amana Funds in a current prospectus or summary prospectus, please visit amanafunds.com or call toll-free 1-800-728-8762. Please read the prospectus or summary prospectus carefully before investing. Investing involves risk, including the risk that you could lose money. The Amana Funds restrict investments to those companies consistent with Islamic and sustainable principles, which limits opportunities and may affect performance. This material is for general information only and is not a research report or commentary on any 
investment products offered by Saturna Capital. This material should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security in any jurisdiction where such an offer or solicitation would be illegal. We do not provide tax, accounting, or legal advice to our clients, and all investors are advised to consult with their tax, accounting, or legal advisors regarding any potential investment. Investors should not assume that investments in the securities and or sectors described were or will be profitable. This podcast is prepared based on information Saturna Capital deems reliable. However, Saturna Capital does not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the information. Investors should consult with a financial advisor prior to making an investment decision. The views and information discussed in this commentary are at a specific point in time, are subject to change, and may not reflect the views of the firm as a whole. All material presented in this publication, unless specifically indicated otherwise, is under copyright to Saturna. No part of this publication may be altered in any way, copied, or distributed without the prior express written permission of Saturna Capital. None of the Amana funds own any securities of Viacom. Other companies mentioned in this episode are privately held.